0: trusted voice of truth and light god gave me a gift i shovel well i shovel very well and a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep we've got a blind date with destiny and it looks like she's ordered the lobster this is the brian hyde show well hello there and welcome to the show oh man have i got a lot to share with you today and time is short, so I'm going to get right to it. You're going to notice a definite theme in today's show. And that theme is going to be along the lines of not participating in official lies. In fact, I want to start with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. My respect for this man deepens as my awareness grows and as my understanding of the world grows. I, I just can't help but marvel at the incredible understanding of... That this man was was given, and and here's the 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 sad and kind of scary part of that, is much of his wisdom and much of his uh, insights came as the result of being persecuted, wrongly accused and arrested, uh, given a show trial, charged under Article 58 of you know the the Soviet uh, Penal Code of you know, conducting uh, anti-Soviet activities. It was the catch-all phrase, kind of like hate crimes is is the catch-all phrase or extremism is kind of a catch-all phrase. And then he was sent to the Gulag. I think he was there for about nine years where he experienced, you know, starvation, freezing, being worked as close to death as they could get him, you know, without actually killing him. This man suffered immensely, But it was in the midst of that suffering that he really found clarity. And his writings share it. And if you haven't read Solzhenitsyn, you haven't found time to read The Gulag Archipelago, among other things, man, you are missing out on on some of the best wisdom ever gleaned from a human mind. And this was his advice in an essay about uh, uh, live not by lies. He said, let the lie come into the world, let it even triumph but not through me. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie, which is where we find ourselves today. That's, that's the crossroads most of us are standing at. And, you know, some people recognize this. I think you recognize it, or you wouldn't even have considered listening to this program for more than about 10 seconds. Nope, sounds like another radical. I don't want to be any part of that. But if you're someone for whom truth matters... And you recognize it's it's under assault pretty much everywhere you turn. There, are, I mean, we have official ministries of truth today. Fact checkers. Well, we found something here. That you shouldn't believe this. And we'll tell you what you can and can't believe. I mean, I played that clip from you yesterday of Jacinda um, Ardern, the former prime minister of New Zealand. She's flat out calling for some way to suppress anything but official government truth or government talk at a global level talking about it in terms of war and weaponization of, of words and misinformation it's the truth that she's out to to control and and to to fight what a crazy time and so here we are you and i stuck in the middle of it doing our best as we muddle along to you know make sure we understand what the world is all about and what's really happening and with the thousands, maybe millions of, of information sources out there and available 24-7, available right there at our fingertips, it's hard to know what you can trust. Okay, I'm in the same boat here. It's not like an I, but I have these special powers. I have a superpower of being able to tell what's true and what isn't. Actually, we do. But not many people want to talk about that superpower. The, the, the superpower I'm referring to is your conscience. There's a light within every single human being that helps us to distinguish between right and wrong. And people can dull that, uh, that light. They can, they can try to mute it or, you know, cover it up or otherwise, you know, unscrew the light bulb if they can. But every single human being has an innate sense of right and wrong. And people who actually develop that sense... Or who exercise it regularly, keep it sharp, become very good at discerning, you know, what's right and what's wrong. I believe they also become better at discerning, you know, what's, what's true and what isn't. But it takes work. And I guess that's the kicker. For a lot of people, well, oh, that's more than I want to do. I'm, I'm a busy person. I got to I gotta make money. I got bills to pay. Yes, we all do. And in fact, those bills are, are mounting because everything, literally everything around us is getting more expensive as we speak. By the way, that's, that's a product of <clears throat> the purchasing power of our dollar shrinking as opposed to, you know, those greedy merchants and vendors out there just trying to make a buck off of us. But I digress. You cannot expect to survive in these times if you don't put serious effort is knowing what the truth is. And, by the way, the the answer is not just to, you know, well, then I guess I better sit down and pull up a computer and start consuming as many sources as possible. You're going to have to learn to choose your sources carefully. And, in fact, stepping away from the television may be one of the best decisions that you ever do. Why? Well, because it's probably the easiest, most accessible source to which people will turn, well, just flip on the news and let's see what's what. And they're in little short, you know, I mean, if you watched a newscast, and I'm talking like network newscast of late, they will cover a story in literally 10 to 15 seconds. A very short little video clip with a quick voiceover as to here's what's going on. They're telling you what to think about a particular story with no sense of nuance, just They have to choose what will fit within the the given time of this newscast. And by the way, some things they might get right. There may be some things that are factual. But my point is, if you want to really understand something, you're going to need more than than pre-digested gruel being spoon-fed to you by people who are paid for their ability to spin and to equivocate. And they're very good at it. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they're, you know they're talentless they're very talented they're very well compensated but what they're being compensated for is their ability to deceive people to make the indefensible look defensible somehow that puts a pretty significant burden on you and me to to figure out what's true and what isn't and the people out there who are willing to do that i don't think i don't think it's a majority now, I'm not saying that to, you know, separated and, well, therefore, you and I, we're better than them, ha! those suckers. I'm just pointing out that if, if anybody was right, I think uh, Albert J. Knock was the one who really talked about the concept of a remnant of people. We're part of that remnant. Why is that so? It's because the truth matters to us more than comfort. In the sense that, yeah, I could have a much more, uh, I could have a much better state of mind, you know, as far as peaceful state of mind to just be blissfully ignorant. But I do want to know the truth. I don't want to be assured by the, the blow-dried spinmeister that, yeah, everything's just proceeding the way that to the founders envisioned. Everything is just exactly as it should be as you know, government expands its grip over my life and my pocketbook and takes my freedoms and restricts my my children in ways that it never even dreamed of restricting me. I don't want to believe that's normal because it's not. So you got to be willing to pay a price. You're either going to pay the price to learn how to think for yourself and be willing to rigorously and deeply study whatever it is that uh, that you want to understand Or you will pay the price of waking up to recognize that uh, you're wearing chains. They may be figurative, but they're very, very real. Because you are beholden to someone else to tell you what to think. I think a good rule of thumb here is when, when it comes to studying an issue... You know, we hear a lot about, well, we need to trust the science, trust the experts. You know, don't you go doing your own, you know, research. You know, your Google ability is not the same as my scientific degree. Baloney. Now, Google, by the way, that's probably a bad example to use as a search engine, given all the ways that it violates your privacy. But you absolutely can understand things, even hard things. And the key to that understanding comes when you sit down and you start to reading, you know, about a particular item. It's not how many pages you read. Well, I've read 100 pages today about this, and now I feel like I'm pretty well informed. How much did you understand? How much did you comprehend of what you read? And if the answer is out of 100 pages, well, I understood maybe what was on five of them. Okay, that's, that's the limit of your understanding that you're, you're operating at 5%. So if you're going to research a a particular topic, just remember comprehension, not number of pages, is the measure of, you know, how well you are grasping the information. And I'm not going to pretend it's not hard work. It is. It's the kind of stuff that will give you headaches. You may actually break into a light sweat, depending on how difficult the subject is. But the question I have for you is, is it worth it in order to know the truth for yourself? I happen to think it is but I'd rather you find out for yourself so that you can answer that question with confidence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me get that rant out of my system early on. I've just—I've been feeling this building all week, and just kind of had to get that off my chest. Don't let the lie come into the world through you. There's a lot of ways that can apply. Uh, don't let evil come into the world through you. Solzhenitsyn was wise on so many levels, but uh, I want to share a couple of articles with you in this segment. Uh, first one, I got to give a tip of my hat. To uh, my friend, Chicago Ron, for for sending this one to me. I wasn't aware of this, but here's the headline from two days ago. Biden is creating a new White House office focused on gun violence prevention. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here, but uh, gun control activists have been privately advocating for just such an office for years. And it comes as they recognize that the hopes of additional gun reform legislation that would read gun control is very unlikely. So there are two activists who are joining this new White House office. Greg Jackson is a survivor of gun violence who has led the Community Justice Action Fund. And also Rob Wilcox, who's worked at the groups Every Town for Gun Safety, and Brady. Now, the article comes right out and calls them activists. And I, I know some people think, well, that can be a good thing. It can also be a, a bad thing in that uh, these are the people who think they're smart enough to game the system and use it to their ends. And I suspect this is probably what, uh, what these two fellows represent. They hope that the office will enable Biden to make more use of his presidential bully pulpit to push for what they call more gun safety measures. We need a White House team to focus on this issue on a daily basis. It's a national crisis. That's according to Poe Murray, chairman of the Newtown Action Alliance, which was started after the 2012 mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Now, Murray's arguing, and this is the dangerous part, public opinion is on Biden's side. In a recent NPR-PBS uh, NewsHour, Marist poll, a majority of Americans said it's more important to curb gun violence than to protect gun rights. By the way, let me point out some of the rhetorical sleight of hand here that, that's going on guns don't have rights people do human beings have rights you and I have rights natural rights including the right to self-defense now we shared with you yesterday an article from the 10th Amendment Center talking about that right to self-defense the first right among all natural rights every living thing fights for its life But here you have this uh, slanted uh, National Proletariat Radio, PBS NewsHour, Marist, I, I had to look twice to make sure it wasn't supposed to say Marxist, poll saying, well, a majority of Americans say it's more important to curb gun violence than to protect gun rights. This is, this is a false question. Curb gun violence? Are the guns out there committing violence themselves? Absolutely not. They're being used by human beings. And that's who has to be held accountable when they have done something wrong. You don't punish everybody ahead of time by preemptively limiting their rights, including the right to defend their lives. But they're appealing to the idea, well, most of most of public opinion on this, of course it is. You've got generations of brainwashed people. And this is kind of this is the scary part, especially if you've been watching anything, you know, coming across TikTok in the last couple of years. Gun violence is a top-of-mind issue for Gen Z voters. Now, of course, they still believe that uh, the the National Rifle Association is the boogeyman here. They're the ones that are to blame for all this. But basically, the kids have been persuaded we've got to do something about gun violence. And when, when they say do something, we've got to try to disarm the public. Now, I'm not using this term pejoratively, but it's going to sound like, well, you're just calling them names, but this is the epitome of what useful idiots are like. All these kids who are we're going to march out of school, we're going to march for our lives. They don't even realize that they are being used as useful idiots. Look at this, they're, they're running on this issue and they're, they're going to, we're going to take charge eventually, we're going to take all the guns away. And they have no clue. What happens? They have no idea. They think gun violence is something that only happens within the public sector, within the private sector, rather. And you can trust government to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen. If they had even a smattering of understanding of what happens when governments disarm their citizens, they would recognize the worst atrocities, the worst genocides, literal genocides were carried out after government's first targeted a particular population and then disarmed it by law every single time now you got to understand we're not talking you know cause equals correlation or correlation equals cause here uh, it's not to say that every every government that has restricted the right to bear arms for its citizens has immediately engaged in genocide that's not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is every single genocide was preceded by Official government action disarming the targeted population every single time. That's pretty tough to argue with. So, I know I'm getting a bit worked up here, but I guess the the takeaway from this is that uh, so-called assault weapon, that AR-15 or whatever it is they're demonizing at the moment, it's a life preserver. Do not turn loose of your life preserver. Because the people who want to take that from you are not doing it out of a sense of we just want to make sure that you're safe and protected. Nope. We want to make sure that you have no ability to tell us no. We want to make sure that when democracy fails, you don't still have a vote. Whereas an armed citizen, when democracy fails, absolutely still has a vote. All right. Moving on. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this just because this this one kind of feels like the daily tattler to me. But I do want to point out that when you absolutely positively have to smear a person, an individual, beyond redemption, the tried and true tactic historically is to label them as a sexual predator or a sexual deviant. So you've probably heard about the allegations that have been leveled against Um, Russell Brand, he's an actor, he's a comedian, he's a commentator. He's an influencer, no doubt about it. But have you heard how British members of Parliament are trying to cancel Russell Brand? And they're undermining the presumption of innocence and feeding cancel culture. Very, very strange stuff. Now, look, I don't know if Russell Brand is guilty of what he's accused of. I believe four women came forward and said, well, he raped us. But this, we're talking... 20, 30 years ago, perhaps? I mean, it's it's funny how these accusations come out um, long after the fact and, uh, and only after he has taken a, a turn away from being a left-winger and actually started speaking truth that is very inconvenient to the ruling class. I mean, it's funny how the, suddenly the accusations came up like that. But last, uh, uh, just a couple of nights ago, I guess it was revealed that a senior member of parliament had written letters to multiple social media companies requesting information on Russell Brand's income, in other words, whether his platforms were monetized, and covertly pressuring them into either demonetizing or removing his accounts. This was from Dame Caroline Dininich. She's the chair of the Culture, Media, and Sport Committee, asking questions like whether Mr. Brand is able to monetize his content, whether Rumble intends to join YouTube in suspending monetization, and what steps they're taking to ensure creators are not able to use the platform to undermine the welfare of victims. I mean, that all sounds reasonable until you consider this man has been convicted of nothing. At this point, it's just accusations. And again, suspicious in some senses. Again, I don't know if they're true or not. All I know is they have not been proven. This hasn't been adjudicated. Nowhere has evidence been presented to a jury that would conclude beyond a reasonable doubt, yep, he did what he's accused of. Can you see the dangerous waters that we are, are starting to drift into here? And of course, you know, many of these companies, these platforms like YouTube, boom, immediately deplatformed him, took him down. It's pretty interesting. Seems like this only happens to people who speak inconvenient truths. And and Russell Brand, you know, whatever flaws he may have, that guy has been seriously red-pilled, and he's not shy about sharing what he has been learning. So this smacks more of uh, somebody in the ruling class really wants to shut him up badly. And this seems to be the preferred way of going about that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got a pretty heavy article I'm about to lay on you here, but uh, I keep coming back to, I think the most important decision that you and I are on the cusp of having to make is whether or not we are going to participate in a central bank digital currency. Are we going to allow our money to be converted into a digital government controlled or at least controlled by those who work hand in hand with government kind of organization with a social credit score attached to it and absolutely out of our control. In other words, your bank account. Well, that's nice. It's yours, but it can be taxed. It can be fined. It can be confiscated. It can be switched off or made inaccessible at the whim of those who run the system. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not like somebody would abuse that kind of power. What's that? Oh, look at what happened to the Canadian uh, Freedom Convoy truckers and the people who supported them. Ooh, yeah, that was kind of a, an interesting uh, interesting episode and probably a good lesson for anybody who was paying attention. So I have this article by Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. And I'm going to start with this question. How can you know when central bank digital currencies are about to be made mandatory. Right? At this point, it's just, well, it's a good idea, and it's convenient, and it's, uh, it's voluntary, so, you know, this is something you might want to be a part of. That's going to change to you will participate in this, or you will be excluded from society. I mean, it's got a very Mark of the Beast feel to it, but we won't go there for now. Brandon Smith says the answer to that question is, when government starts calling for price controls, rationing and CBDCs come next. Now, he says last month, in the middle of the surreal Bidenomics hype, he published an article titled Nothing is Over, Inflation is About to Come Back with a Vengeance. By the way, if you want to experience that for yourself, go buy a hamburger and fries and a drink at the drive-thru. You're going to be shocked. You know, lunch that you used to spend five, six bucks on, maybe seven if you wanted to go with the deluxe burger. It's upwards of 12 bucks, maybe 15 bucks for a burger and fries and a drink. It's not that the burger's that good, it's that your dollar has lost that much purchasing power. Anyway, Brandon says he outlined the misconceptions surrounding the consumer price index and how it's not an accurate model for the effects of inflation. He also noted that the index has been manipulated downwards by Joe Biden as he flooded the market with oil from the strategic reserves. And because so many elements of the CPI are connected to energy, Biden had created an artificial drop in CPI using this strategy. Now, Brandon says, I argued as the strategic reserves ran out and Biden lost his leverage, CPI would rise again and prices on a number of necessities would climb. Well, that's what's happening now with the biggest jump in CPI in 14 months and gas prices clawing towards all-time highs. Inflation's not going away anytime soon, but he says the bigger issue at hand is who benefits most from inflation and rising prices. Now, the answer might be obvious to some, but many people are oblivious to the root cause of inflationary dysfunction and often see it as a consequence of random economic chaos rather than a product of clever engineering. The truth is... Banking oligarchs and political authorities revel in the inflationary tidal wave because it's the perfect opportunity to institute far-reaching socialist controls over resources. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a second. Just this last week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was accusing grocery store owners of unfairly profiting on the the backs of their customers because of the rising prices of, of groceries. And he was telling him, you're going to come and you're going to meet with us and we're going to decide how to solve this problem and we're not taking anything off the table. You will present a solution to us, okay, governments mandating to those grocery store owners, you will figure out a way to not charge as much for the food that your customers are buying. Or, you know, he warns taxation may be on the table. In other words, we will figure out a way to, to punish you after accusing you of gouging your customers. Okay, now, if you're a business owner, you understand very well. You're often at the, the mercy of whatever, you know, price increases you're facing in terms of what, uh, what your vendors have to pay. It always gets passed along. The bottom line is the food prices are higher because the dollar purchases less. Even Canadian dollars purchase less. It's not a matter of greed. It's not a matter of, well, they're just trying to get rich on people who have to buy this food. But you see how he's setting the stage for government intervention? That's the idea. Well, we're going to come in here. We're going to have to nationalize the grocery stores. Oh, boy. We're going to get an experience of what it was like to, to shop in the Soviet Union. Long lines, limited supplies, lots of central planning. Ah, oh, Sounds like a gas. Brandon Smith says, in most cases, central bankers are the primary culprits behind the creation of these inflationary events. And he says the word creation best applies because it's nearly impossible for overt inflation to occur without them. More money chasing less resources triggers supply-side instability, and prices go up. It's happened too many times for people not to know. Now, he says, These inflation events trigger a predictable set of dominoes in society as well as in economy and finance. Price spikes, diminished savings, rising poverty, rising crime, rising interest rates. And that's followed in most cases by failed rate hikes, more inflation, then more hikes, diminishing foreign investment in debt, foreign currency dumps causing more inflation, plunging consumer spending and job losses. I mean, you saw this in the 1920s Weimar Germany, 1970s America, 1990s Yugoslavia, Argentina in the 2000s, and Venezuela and beyond. But what happens next? And this is the part you want to pay attention to. In each case... The trend leads first to price controls on producers and distributors, which ultimately fail. Then comes government rationing and the complete takeover of necessities, including the food supply. Now, I know some people are thinking, well, that's not going to happen here. Brandon says, oh, yeah, it already has. In 1971, Richard Nixon issued Executive Order 11615 Under the Economic Stabilization Act, which was established in 1970, it demanded a 90-day freeze on wages and prices in order to counter inflation. And it was an exceedingly rare action outside of a world war and conveniently took place during an election cycle. Now, keep in mind, the real inflationary crisis hadn't yet happened, but the price controls gave markets a short-term boost and gave Nixon an election win. In 1973 controls returned during the Arab oil embargo. They failed and resulted in long-term gas price inflation. I do remember those gas lines as a kid. Gerald Ford then called for American businesses to institute price controls under his whip inflation now program. It was the subject of ridicule and even made fun of by a young Joe Biden who now falsely claims to have solved his own inflation problem with his useless inflation reduction act. Finally, Jimmy Carter introduced price and wage guidelines, which means controls, which rewarded businesses that raised prices below a certain or below a set percentage. Any businesses that raised prices above the percentage and made a pre-tax profit above the previous two years were penalized. In no case could a firm increase its dollar profit by more than 6.5% unless the excess was attributable to increased unit sales volume. That plan, of course, failed to stop inflation. So the problem is simple, says Brandon Smith. Price controls lead to lost profit incentive, which leads to less production. Less production leads to less supply. Less supply leads to, say it with me, rising prices. This is on top of the root cancer that is fiat money creation. Politicians will rarely, if ever, try to address the actual cause of an inflationary crisis. The government and the central banks, yeah, Instead, they're going to try to blame free markets, greedy businessmen, and profit-taking in times of distress. And the warning that he's sounding here is that the pattern is repeating again today as it becomes clear to the public that central bank interest rate hikes are not having a significant effect, and the public is still paying 25 to 50% more on the majority of goods they purchase compared to three years ago. So... Rationing could be used to lure the public into accepting things like a universal basic income, central bank digital currencies. Government-run food centers could easily restrict purchases of goods to a limited list of items. They could also demand payment using specific methods like digital currencies. In a short period of time, cash would be removed because retailers pressured by government will refuse to accept it. Brandon says it's hard to say what the future will bring in terms of politics, given that the next presidential campaign is looking like a complete circus. Historically speaking, though, he says both Democrat and Republican presidents have tried price controls in the past. Public pressure should be applied at the state level at minimum to stop this from happening. And as convenient as it might seem to blame the producers and distributors, the real threat is coming from governments and banks. He says we cannot let the people who caused the crisis also benefit from it by giving them more power. There's a lot to this article. I think you'll find it worth your time to read though. And again, this this is the time to start really thinking through. Where will I stand when I'm presented with the choice of you must uh, submit to this digital currency or you're not gonna be able to buy. You're not gonna be able to shop. You're not gonna be able to gas up your car, pay your rent. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. It's our final segment today. And boy... (laughs) <laughs> I've got some stuff to share with you in this last segment. I want to take a quick moment here to thank the sponsors on my show. If you go to my uh, my website, BrianHideshow.com, click on the sponsors link. You'll find a list of all the folks who helped to make this program possible. And uh, I would encourage you to do business with them. If they have what you need, please feel free to do business with them and uh, and you know take care of those needs. Let other people know about it doesn't hurt to to spread the message that uh, there's a guy out here who's speaking truth as best he can and uh, maybe has an interesting slant on it. And if not, that's fine too. What I have to say may not be for everybody. So I'm, I'm coming back to January 6th. I saw that Ray Epps was actually indicted this last week. This is remarkable. Now, it was only a misdemeanor, you know, disorderly conduct and I forget something else, you know, but... Considering he was the guy the night before on January 5th telling people we have to go into the Capitol. We have to go inside. It's, it's very curious. And I have to wonder, okay, what's the game here? The media has written so many puff pieces about Ray. Poor Ray. Everybody thinks he's part of this conspiracy. He's just a patriotic American. Nope. Um, he seems to be at the center of something. But that narrative control seems to be getting away from the Narrative Managers. And I, I saw this article, by the way, thanks to uh, thanks to my friend Ruben for sending this to me and to my attention. This is from zerohedge.com. FBI had so many paid informants in J6 riot, they lost track and had to perform an audit. That's according to a former assistant FBI director who told lawmakers that the agency had so many paid informants at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, that had actually lost track and had to perform an audit. This is Steve D'Antono, who uh, was formerly in charge of the FBI's Washington field office. And He told the House Judiciary Committee in closed-door testimony that while his field office knew some of their informants, informants rather would be at Donald Trump's Stop the Steal rally across town, informants from other field offices were present at the Capitol that day, as well as other informants who, partic- informants who participated on their own accord. So why would they do such a thing like this? Well, I'm going to give you a better explanation coming up here in the next few moments, courtesy of Sasha Stone. But if you heard Thomas Massey quizzing, uh, who was it? It was someone from uh, from the Department of Justice and asking him, you know, how many, how many... FBI informants were there, and this guy just keeps obfuscating. Well, I, I can't say that I know that there were any, so I, I, could, I can't really answer. He doesn't want to answer that question. Actually, it was Dan Pongino was talking about this yesterday. And it's very clear why they don't want to answer these questions. Because if they admit, well, yes, we knew that there were you know, FBI informants there in the crowd, the next questions that follow are going to be, what are the names of those informants? followed by subpoenas, followed by more questions. Why does this matter? Well, look, I mean, you've got people, the Proud Boys, being put away for decades, some of them who weren't even there at the Capitol. This is being treated as the crime of the century. I mean, people, it was bigger than 9-11, bigger than Pearl Harbor. What a load of garbage. But it's an even bigger load of garbage when you consider that very likely there were informants, paid informants or agents working for the government who were part of that disturbance. I'm not going to play the game. It was an insurrection. No, it wasn't. You want to see what an insurrection looks like? Go watch the video from 1989 of uh, Nikolai and uh, I forget his wife's name. Is it Elena Ceausescu? giving a speech to the people, telling them to calm their butts down, and then realizing, oh, my gosh, the people are absolutely not listening to us. They're storming the building, and they were literally dragged out, tried, and shot on Christmas Day. It's ugly. But that's what an insurrection looks like. Okay? So let's, let's not pretend that uh, what happened at the Capitol, out of line it may have been, but it was definitely no insurrection. And the fact that there were so many informants in the crowd that they lost track and had to perform an audit should at least cast a few questions upon the official version of, well, well, these were people trying to overthrow the government. If that's true, why weren't these informants trying to stop them? Were they helping people? Were they directing people into the Capitol? I'm sorry, but I think locking Grandma up for a few years because she wandered through the Capitol waving a little flag, especially after being waved in, by a police officer there at the doors, that doesn't constitute a crime. That's, that's an invented crime for the sake of we've got to instill fear and we've got to demonize and absolutely criminalize any opposition to our agenda, which is what the ruling class has been trying to do ever since January 6, 2021. By the way, feel free to disagree, but I, I think that's right on. All right, now I want to shift gears. In the last few minutes, I want to I want to share with you a couple excerpts from Sasha Stone's latest uh, essay on Substack. It's called Nicole Wallace Wants Gulags. Now, I don't know Nicole Wallace. I don't watch uh, MSNBC. But uh, Sasha Stone really just absolutely takes apart the spin and the deceit of what our Orwellian mainstream media is selling. So apparently the other night on MSNBC, Nicole Wallace reached her breaking point. Something must be done or we will all live to regret it. Now she's talking about, what do we do about MAGA? Something bad is going to happen, Nicole Wallace said. What will we tell our children and grandchildren when it does? And then she looked directly in the camera and said, you good with nothing? Her face flushed. Her expression resolute? What something must be done? Well, guess what? Nicole Wallace didn't say, and her guests couldn't come up with a final solution either. But it's worth asking Nicole herself, what will finally end her nightmare? Detainment camps? For the cesspool of the MAGA base, as she puts it? Gulags? How do we dump the dissidents and non-compliant citizens far enough away that they can't touch the America they once called home? Sasha says the ruling class, we already know, they're fine with gulags. They shot a January 6th protester, point blank, and that was okay. She had the wrong skin color for it to make the news. She was to be feared, and all the journalists told us so by her social media posts. So why shouldn't she be shot? They dumped the January 6th prisoners in solitary, sentenced to decades of prison because of spectral evidence punishing them on their ideological noncompliance and allegiance to Trump and American democracy. And after all of this time, after the American public has mostly complied with the destruction of our norms when it came to finding something to charge Trump with, it's still not a matter of anything Trump did, but always a matter of something Trump said. In her flushed-faced rage, Nicole Wallace cited example after example of bad things Trump said on Truth Social, as if they didn't hang on every word, as if their entire economy isn't built on the backs of those tweets or truths. Sasha says, who are you kidding, Nicole? This is your bread and butter, girlfriend. You know it. I know it. Jack Smith and his happy warrior, Nicole Wallace, decided that their interpretation of what Trump said, if you come after me, I'm going to come after you, mattered more than Trump's own intention. And that's what they've been doing for seven years, jumping to conclusions about what Trump said. What Trump meant, by the way, in any in case anyone wants to know, is that if he's elected, he'll spare no one when it comes to weaponizing his own Justice Department. And why shouldn't he? And from here, Sasha goes into reminding us of a few things we may have forgotten. Even Nicole Wallace knows by now the rhetoric from MSNBC and CNN led to real-world violence against Trump supporters. Do you not remember this from 2016? Chased, kicked, spit on, beaten, egged, even shot. All because MSNBC demonized them and convicted them as racists in the court of public opinion. you Remember the casual murder of Trump supporter Aaron J. Danielson up in Seattle? This level of dehumanization would ordinarily be shamed and criticized by a journalist class that still had an ounce of integrity. But they couldn't say a thing after Trump actually won, lest they be accused of normalizing Hitler. That's why they needed January 6th. Trump supporters just don't do this. They don't rage as a mob. They don't smash windows or break down doors. They don't storm buildings. But they needed the image of MAGA to be violent. That day had to end badly. Otherwise, nothing else they've done since would have gone over so easily. So she says the media has sold a lie about that day and remained incurious as to just how how any of it could have happened, even if they've officially lost count of just how many paid informants by the FBI were there that day. Not to mention why it took hours to call in the National Guard, even after what their informants told them was about about to take place beforehand. Very interesting article here. And I hope that you'll, uh, I hope you'll take a closer look at this. It's a fairly lengthy article. Most of Sasha Stone's articles are, they are worth the time though. She is a former leftist. She is a former true believer. And I don't know what exactly her red pill moment was, but uh, this girl sees the truth and speaks the truth like very few others do. She's a national treasure. This is The Brian Hyde Show.